What's up, everybody? This is Cortland from NDHackers.com, and you're listening to the Indie Hackers podcast. More people than ever are building cool stuff online and making a lot of money in the process. And on this show, I sit down with these indie hackers to discuss the ideas, the opportunities, and the strategies they're taking advantage of so the rest of us can do the same. Derek Reimer, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. It's good to have you on. You're like... Uh, you're like one of the people who like I'm the most tangentially connected to through the podcast because like I've had your podcast co-host Ben Ornstein on the show at least two or three times now. Yeah, I've had your ex-co-founder Rob Walling. You guys started the company Drip together on the show like three times now. Yeah, and this is my first time having you on the show. <laughs> yeah, so it feels like it's a long overdue like you know meeting. I figured it was about time to about time to come on and officially meet you. I, yeah, I've been a fan of your work for a long time and and obviously aware of, you know, you and the indie hackers community. So, thanks for uh yeah, happy to be here. I was actually just talking to Rob and he suggested you come on the show. He's like, "Why don't you have Derek on?" I'm like, "Why don't I have Derek on?" <laughs> and Ben said the same thing the last time he was on the show. Today you're working on SavvyCal. Yeah. Which is a super cool app. What is SavvyCal exactly? Yeah, so SavvyCal is a it's a scheduling tool that allows you to basically create a scheduling link and send it to someone else and show your availability, subtracting out when you're already busy on your calendar and basically coordinating a a time to meet. And we kind of have some some fresh takes on it. Um, obviously it's a it's a well-established category. There are a lot of different tools uh, in the market and so we kind of have some particular opinions about about some fresh ways to do it. Right. And I know you're not like super transparent with revenue numbers, but like you told me you're willing to give like a ballpark. Where are you at in terms of like your success and growth with Savvy Cow? I mean, my, my milestone that I'm driving towards is official like default alive status, I guess, where I can, where I can like pay, you know, profitable on paying my salary and all the expenses of running the business. And we're right about there. So we crossed, crossed 10 K, um, heading, heading to 20 K, um, MRR. So that's like the most exciting place to be Yeah, because then you kind of like are looking to your future. Like, well, what do I want to do? You can do anything. Right. Exactly. Could, yeah. Because essentially your life is in your own hands now. You're not accountable to anybody for your financial independence. And then you got to make some tough decisions, right? Do I want to keep making this bigger? Do I want to shift directions? Do I want to hire and grow? Do I want to keep it going at the same pace? Yeah, that's what we, Ben and I on our podcast, we keep, like the last couple of times we've recorded, we keep coming back to this kind of central question of like, all roads lead back to what do I really want out of this business? And figuring that out is actually very difficult because me, like a lot of indie hackers and founders of bootstrapped or quasi bootstrapped companies like we kind of hold intention this this ambition to grow something big but also kind of maintain a a healthy balance and a calm a calm working environment and sometimes those two are in tension with each other so it, it's always a fun game to figure out and sometimes it changes you know yeah. like early on you might be like i just want healthy sane balance you know i want a great life and then you like get to that point and you're like i want some challenge right. and i want to like go for something bigger and more challenging and like that's totally normal for things to change once you hit one particular goal. So I've listened to you and Ben on your, your podcast, The Art of Products, an excellent show. And your format is kind of just like, as Ben puts it, two dudes talking. Yep. <laughs> and back when I was listening at the beginning, you were working on your company level and Ben was working on Tuple. And it was this weird juxtaposition because Tuple was taking off. Like Ben was like making money hand over fists, like all oh, his customers are super jazzed, everything was going well. And then you were like in this kind of like sad, <laughs> sad, depressed state where you're like, ah, oh, my company level is like not working. What am I going to do? You're trying to salvage it. It was just such like a, a juxtaposition between like the two of you. And I felt like bad listening to, to you because I was like, oh, I really hope that Derek makes it. Like I hope he figures it out because Ben's doing so well. And like now seeing that you have figured things out with your next company, Savvy Cal, like it's all good. It's all good vibes. Like it's almost better to like listen to like a failure story 
<laughs> when like a success story comes after yeah it. when you know that there's light at the end of the tunnel yeah <laughs> i mean yeah trust me it was yeah and it was mentally difficult i think something that we really strive to do on our podcast and i think is an important like responsibility of working in public is trying to show both sides of the coin you know and and not just project the uh the good things, but but hopefully tell the, the the raw, honest story about what's not working well. And but yeah, it was it was difficult to show up on the mic every week, and especially when things started to get real, started to really come to a head. On like, okay, I think I think I'm going to have a lot of trouble bringing this to market and getting getting real customers. What do I do now? One of the parts we can probably dive into that story a little bit more, but like one of the parts of the level journey that being able to deconstruct what went wrong and kind of lay the whole story out there and not, you know, obviously you can learn personally, learn a lot from, from your own failings, but then being just making the decision to like be open about that. It, it made me feel good that potentially I could help some other founders who might run into some of the same, um, same roadblocks that I did. I think it's worth going through like, the story of Level and then the story of Savvy Cal. Because, I mean, you haven't been working on Savvy Cal for that long. You started it last year. You're already past the 10K a month in revenue mark, which is super cool. So I want to, like, look at the differences between, like, why did one business not work and why did the other business, like, why is it working so well? And so maybe the place to start is at the end of your very first business that I'm aware of, Drip. You started Drip. It was an email marketing tool you built with Rob Walling. Wildly successful. You guys got acquired by lead pages, I think. And I don't, you guys have never shared like revenue numbers, but I imagine like <laughs> you did pretty well and that uh, you're sitting there, you know, earning your money, getting your earn out, uh, thinking about what, like what the next thing to do is. How did you decide like what to do after you sold your company? Yeah. So I, I kind of had this itch like during my time of, of working, um, you know, at Drip and then, and then Lead Pages. Lead Pages was a team of 150 people and we were like a team of 10. So we kind of, got absorbed into that and suddenly like I was in a I was in a Slack workspace with over 100 people in it and watching kind of everything um all the business kind of increasingly being run on Slack and we were sort of not fully in the office all, all the time together so a lot of stuff a lot of communication being pushed onto chat as a medium and I became very, very intensely aware of all the ways that that um, is a challenging environment to work in without a lot of discipline, right? So, so even even though we tried to all be respectful of each other's time and attention, like I just I was having a heck of a time trying to trying to not constantly drop the ball and, and get distracted by um, by Slack. And this was in like 2015, 2016 or something when Slack was like relatively new to catching on. Yeah, we had been Slack users for a long time. But of course, when you're a team of 10, it's everything's just easy. Most conversations are in the general channel and it's like no big deal. And then you just yeah, then you get all kinds of different styles of communication all mashing together and it kind of becomes chaotic. And so I sort of had was forming this hypothesis around like, okay, I, obviously remote work is is here to stay even at that, but now it's more so than ever. But even at the time, that was that was a growing trend. And so I was kind of sensing that there was increasing need for good tooling around to facilitate asynchronous communication and remote work. But I was just pretty well convinced that Slack was not the, the end-all be-all that a lot of people were making it out to be and that we could do better on the product front. So I couldn't get that out of my mind, and I was leading up to what felt like the natural stopping point for my for my tenure at Drip. Like we had we had successfully transitioned to the new team, and and I just was feeling like it was time to to move back onto something. And in retrospect, I would have done this a little differently. I didn't 
take any kind of break at all. So literally the week that I left is when I sort of published the the level manifesto, put that out into the world and started started uh, kind of talking about the the next act. And I would have been better served well served by a little bit of downtime to just step back, assess, think think really hard about this and check my assumptions. But, but there I was right. <laughs> easier, easier said than done, yeah. especially when you're super excited about the next thing. And I know a lot of people who've like sold their companies and made a whole boatload of money and that they're suddenly in this position where they have to decide like what next. It's kind of similar to like getting to the $10,000 a month mark with your company. Mm-hmm. It's like, okay, well what next? Yep. And there's like generally four approaches. It's kind of like number one, you graduate to like the next level in your field. So for a lot of founders, that means like, okay, what's beyond a founder? I guess I become an investor or something. Uh, that's what your co-founder Rob did. Now he's like investing lots of money into startups. Uh, number two is like you kind of keep doing the same thing, but maybe you get like a little bit more ambitious, or you do something different. So that's kind of what you're doing. You're like, no, I still want to be a founder. Like I want to keep starting companies. This is what I love doing. Like, let me start another one. And then there's like a third and a fourth option. Option number three, just switch industries entirely. Just like go become a writer or an actor or a painter or something and just be like, I'm done with this. Uh, and then number four is just like retire, go live on a beach, do nothing. Which to be honest, I know zero people who've done that. Yeah. Even people who say they're going to do that, they just eventually do something else. Like it doesn't necessarily work out that way. What do you think caused you to go down like the second path of continuing to be a founder? What do you think is the difference between you and Rob who decided to be an investor? Like what drives people down either road? Yeah, I think, I mean, I think Rob, he, Rob's about 10 years older than I am. And he, he kind of had a head start in, in the industry. So I, he was a mentor of mine. I looked up to him. I read his book before we started working together. It was fun. Um, and so I feel like in our conversations, I always teased him like, uh, you're going to, you're going to want to get back into the game. You're going to want to build another (laughs) SaaS company. But I mean, as we know, it's these Building these companies is a, it takes a lot of energy, it takes a lot out of you. Yeah. Um, can be pretty stressful. The, the, the highs are good, the lows are, are pretty tough to deal with. And I think Rob is feeling like, I've done that. Like I've, I feel, <laughs> I feel good. <laughs> I hope he's listening. Rob, you're an old guy. Yeah. That's the difference. You're, <laughs> you've had your time. Yeah. And, and I feel like he's kind of gets the best of both worlds now as a, as an investor. Mm-hmm. He's an investor in Savvy Cal and, uh, and lots of other companies. And so now he gets to, um, lend his advice where it makes sense, but without having to uh, feel all the ups and downs. Uh, right. It is kind of nice as an investor and advisor where you can give high level strategic advice, but then you don't have to sit there and send out like 200 cold emails. Like you're not doing, you're not doing like the sluggish, like thankless work. You're doing like the fun stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So coming out, coming away from the drip acquisition, you know, I feel like I have more, more products in me and also just the ambition to, to build something meaningful. And it was kind of, it's kind of a test for me, like before drip, I experimented with, with a couple of failed attempts at startups. I was just shortly out of college and spent a couple of years, like making all kinds of mistakes and the classic mistakes of not validating things in advance or focusing on marketing and all that kind of stuff. And then kind of took this journey with Drip alongside Rob and built a product on the side while doing Drip, which felt like a little bit validating because it was something that I sort of brought to market and saw a little bit of a little bit of success from it. It wasn't a knock it out of the park, but it was a it was a nice like little mini exit. But to me, it's like I feel the challenge of like, okay, this is my this is my time to step up and be the founder of something, you know, on my own and and see what I can do. So I, I do take it a little bit as a personal challenge too. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Especially like once you get like, uh, Rob talks about the staircase, you know, you start with something small, take that first step, you get to something like, you know, a little bit bigger. Like once you have these wins under your belt, like it feels so much more compelling to just do something a little bit more ambitious. Yep. And to kind of like, I don't know, almost like prove yourself 
to who? Like, I don't know, maybe to yourself. But I felt the same thing. Like, hey, well, like, I need to prove, like, even in the early days of Indie Hackers, I was interviewing all these SaaS founders who were making money. I'm like, after Indie Hackers, I need to start my own SaaS business and prove that I can do the same exact thing. And the question is kind of like, why? You know, why do this? Yeah, it's funny. It's a, it's a very, I think it's maybe something in founder DNA, something intrinsic to us that just drives us to do these crazy hard endeavors. I'm not sure what it is. <laughs> Would you describe yourself as like a competitive person? I would say I'm moderately competitive, but I'm not, I'm definitely not the most competitive. I'm friends with, I have a friend who's in like SaaS sales and that gives me a, an example of someone who's, who's very competitive, always kind of playing the game, the game of the chess game of, of, uh, of business and SaaS. And I feel like I do feel, get competitive about the, the areas where I feel like I have, I have a potential edge, like, especially when looking at kind of big incumbents in the industry, I don't know, a little bit of the David and Goliath dynamic. That's what really kind of motivates me. And you kind of have that with every company that we're talking about, like Drip. Okay. It's email marketing in an industry where like MailChimp already existed before you started Drip. So like you were the David and they were the Goliath and then Level. Okay. Like Slack was already a huge behemoth and you create Level to sort of take on like the bigger guy. And then Savvy Cow, right? Like Calendly and Acuity, like there's already big scheduling software. And then here you are, like, you know, you're very new entrant. So it seems to be like the, the framework that you love the best is taking on these huge players. Yeah, I would say so. So now you're at this point in your story where you've left Trip. You're like, I'm ready to do something else. I'm going to keep being a founder. You've got more ideas than you. And you end up deciding to do Level. You publish this manifesto that's kind of like anti-Slack. Describe to me yep. this manifesto, because like not very many businesses start with a, a manifesto. I think probably more could, but it worked really well for you. This very much spoke to a problem that I think people felt viscerally, especially especially people who consider themselves to be makers, right? There there was sort of this undertone that I was detecting of like a very deep dissatisfaction with interruptive ways of working. And that is sort of the that's sort of the natural way that a product like Slack works. Like it's just sort of designed to send you push notifications and and be immediate. Like it's just sort of baked into the product. And at the time there were floating around a term called like Slack Lash or whatever. Like this kind of kind of growing grassroots movement towards like trying to put up defenses against Slack. So the manifesto was like, remember when you first signed up for Slack and and I sort of walked through this little story of like at first it was good you were just there was just a few of you and you would chat and then over time things started to devolve and I kind of just the story that people could walk along with and and really and really feel and it seemed to resonate a lot like it got a lot of several thousand email addresses over the course of of a few months lots of just kind of anecdotal validation from people saying like oh yes this is such a big problem like i can't i can't wait to see what you're going to build i would love to use it with my team and so the indicators were like looking very positive initially and user validation is super important and market validation and I was aware that like getting trying to eliminate biases from that was important i think i didn't quite have a fully mature framework around how just to like route around that, which I learned the hard way because I collected pre-sales, did a bunch of interviews, tried to speak to the underlying problem and not my proposed solution. And yet, um, as it turns out, <laughs> as I learned once I had an MVP ready, like um, the actual market response is quite different than, than what I was hearing. Yeah. This, this idea that like people were super motivated to read your manifesto, that like there's the slack clash and everyone was talking about like, 
distraction at work and everyone's talking about like interruption free work. I mean, I literally just got a Slack notification while you were <laughs> giving your speaking turn. It was super <laughs> distracting, right? Like everyone knows it's distracting. Yep. And there's this kind of pattern. I think whenever anything gets big or catches on, it's kind of predictable that there will be a backlash. You know, okay, social media is big. There's going to be a bunch of people who hate social media. Cell phones are big. There's going to be a bunch of people who hate cell phones. And then I tend to fall into the camp of like the counter, counter contrarian. So it's like whatever comes out, everyone hates it. And then I hate the people who hate it <laughs> just, just because for no real reason. Yeah. Uh, and so like yeah. I've embraced all this distracting stuff, but like the result is that like I'm constantly distracted. Why did you decide to, to like write a manifesto? Because there's so many different ways that you could potentially launch a business or test out your idea. Like the only other people I know who've really started with like a manifesto are people like John O'Nolan from Ghost who wrote a manifesto against WordPress and everyone piled on because they all hated WordPress and wanted something better. I think Ben also at Tuple sort of like wrote a manifesto against like Slack acquiring uh, Screen Hero. And like that was kind of like you yep. know something that tapped into like this anger that people felt. Like why did you feel like that was the way to go? I felt like it was the power of storytelling. I've kind of learned that over time through podcasting, through just watching, honestly, like watching kind of Rob's example of marketing drip. We always, for the longest time, we just had like a long form sales letter as our drip homepage. Um, when normally people would have gone to the traditional like SaaS homepage with the little block up in the hero and all that. We just had a bunch of text. And so like, Rob has always been very, um, that was sort of his, his style was to be very kind of like story oriented and, and kind of more traditional like sales letters type, type of stuff. And so that was sort of my background too. And I just felt like telling a compelling story would give me an indicator on whether people were really like nodding along with this. And if I could get people nodding along, then, then I felt like I felt confident that, that I would have a market to sell to. Didn't quite pan out. Um, and so I think I don't even want to bury the lead too much, but like the kind of the the big takeaway was that people lie to you <laughs> <laughs> for your best they, what they think they're they're um, have your best interest in mind. They're trying not to hurt you, and they want to be encouraging. And I think people aren't totally aware of their own purchasing dynamics either. Like so, in this case, I had a lot of managed to convince a lot of like champions in companies to to really buy into the the vision, right? And totally resonated with the with the idea of saying that like Slack is distractive and and I want something better organized. But a lot of those people one didn't have necessarily have buying power and didn't necessarily have the clout inside of their organization to get the buy-in from literally like every manager or every decision maker who would need to be on board with like ripping out the guts of their whole like company communication platform and replacing it with something else. Cause it's not something you can exactly dabble in. You can't just like switch part of it. Cause then you, you still have to keep Slack. If everyone, everyone else in the company is still in Slack and some other department may reach out to you there. Like you can't, you either run both in parallel, which is just sort of worse. Um, or you have to convince everyone to switch over wholesale. And then I think also like just a lot of the people were willing to complain publicly and tell me express that they they agree with with what I was putting mm -hmm. out but ultimately like it wasn't enough of a problem for them to go through jump through the 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 friction of switching right and all of that I probably could have sussed out earlier on but I was sort of right. blinded a bit by my own optimism I think well I think um, if you get a bunch of people because like the call to action at the bottom of your manifesto was like sign up for my mailing list if you agree basically and when you get a lot of people who are all like, yeah, I'm feeling you, Derek. Like, this is exactly the problem I experience. 
And you have like this like innate founder optimism too, where you're like, this is, it's going to be so good. It's going to be super successful. I want to build this cool, amazing thing. It's like really, really hard to kind of like simmer down and like cut through the noise and figure out the right question to ask to make sure that people actually will buy this product. Because it doesn't matter if like people agree with your message. What matters is that they'll like take out their credit card and pay you the monthly subscription fee for whatever you build. And one of the, um, one of the resources that was shared with me kind of later on in, in the level journey it was sort of an eye-opening moment when I read it. It's a book called The Mom Test by Rob Fitzpatrick. Should be required reading for every founder who needs to talk to customers ever. Because it's not not just for early product validation, but even I think for the the process of like sussing out doing a you know customer interview and figuring out what are people really asking for, what's the underlying problems, is it how how badly is that problem affecting them? It just gives you a framework for basically asking questions that are so bulletproof you could even validate an idea with your own mom, which is where the, <laughs> the, uh, the title of the book comes yeah. from. I love that concept because your mom is like the person who's going to be the nicest to you. She's going to tell you everything you want to hear. You're going to be like, what do you think about my startup idea, mom? And she's going to be like, it's amazing. But my takeaway from the mom test, and I've had Rob Fitzpatrick on the show to talk about it. It's funny, like we joke because like the episode is about an hour long, and that's also about how long it takes you to read his book. It's super small. It's super to the point. Like You could just skip the episode and go read his book. But he's really all about asking for proof. Like you don't ask somebody, would you use this? Or what do you think about my idea? You ask them questions like, when was the last time you paid to solve this problem? You know, or give me an example of like an alternative product you're using, et cetera. And if people don't actually have the receipts, then they probably aren't serious. Mm-hmm. Yep. How did you figure out that at uh, level people weren't serious? Because I mean, there's a, a decent amount of time that passed between you writing that manifesto and getting all these email signups and you uh, learning that like, hey, this might not be the right idea. Yeah, knowing when to pull the plug is, is hard and when, like, when to dial back your own optimism and kind of face the reality, right? Yeah, so after reading that book, then I, I basically took a step back because I was kind of in the mode of like trying to, trying to recruit people off my list to sign up, become paying customers, and, and use the MVP. And I was really struggling hard. Like I made it through a good chunk of the list that had been most engaged and was not really getting any bites. And so took a step back and started doing some more more rigorous interviews, <laughs> applying the mom test and hearing just a lot of red flags, a lot of like, well, yeah, I mean, I haven't actually looked for an alternative solution, which is a, that's one of the big things like, yeah, have you have you paid for anything or have you even done like a Google search like Slack alternative and like, no, no, not really, because, you know, we're so entrenched. And so I started to hear that stickiness just come up over and over again. And the funny thing is, like, I still think that it's a viable business in some form under certain conditions. I think that there, and there are there are others. There's Twist from from the Todoist team. They've been around since a little bit before I started working on Level, I think. And I think they're they've been somewhat public with their numbers. It's been a kind of a slog, but I think they're they're gradually growing and making some inroads. So I think it's like a viable problem, but the, then the question becomes like, is it viable for me as a founder under the constraints that I'm willing to operate under? I was not willing to raise traditional venture capital to do this. I think that's maybe what it would have taken just to have more, more time, <laughs> you know, money gives you more time. And yeah, I think it would take lining up the timing with a certain wave of momentum in the industry where there's enough people dissatisfied and willing to adopt something else. And so I just kind of determined, like, after doing those interviews, I was already a year into it, and it just felt too risky to basically take another, what I felt like would be maybe another mm -hmm. year or two of effort to maybe yield a business that's viable. 
Yeah, I remember you talking about like building building out level, and like you were just talking about like I need to build you know this feature and that feature, and like you were kind of sucked into this point where it's like it's a potentially endless slog of features that you need to build to make yeah. customers happy. And in your sort of yeah. retrospective blog post, you talked about the fact that there were actually kind of like maybe two profiles of customers. There were like the really large teams who were like Slack sucks and it's super distracting, but we're not going to switch to your like newly built solution unless we have like these thousand features that you don't have yet. And it's like, well, you don't necessarily mm -hmm. have the resources and the time to build that. And then there were like the small teams who actually could use something really small and simple, but they didn't feel the pain of Slack because like they had a small team. So it wasn't that distracting. Like me with ND hackers, it's like we've got like four or five people on our Slack and it's super easy. And then I switch over to like Stripe Slack and it's like this chaotic beast with like 10,000 channels. And it's like, well, how do you, who do you build for? If you build for the small teams, like you can build a product, but like they don't care enough to switch. And if you build for the large teams, like you're never going to actually be able to build all the features that they need because by the time you're done with that, Slack will be so far ahead. Like it's just, it's like kind of damned if you do, damned if you don't. So what do you, what do you do when you realize like, okay, I've been working on this for a year. It's not working out. I don't really have the patience to try to build this product for these large teams. Like how do you reckon with that as a founder? Well, you rent a cabin in the woods, <laughs> step one, uh, which I did. I actually did. I went, went on a little like retreat. So it's like, okay, I need to, I need to become comfortable with this decision and I can either, I can either have a freak out moment and completely retreat away from, from this endeavor, or I can kind of just take a step back, breathe, evaluate and try to get a, get a clear mind to make a decision on this. And, um, and that's what I did. And I actually, um, I actually spent time writing that, that retrospective post. Um, and I sort of took me a couple days of, of just kind of working on it and, and, and just doing other reading and hiking and other things to get my, get my mind clear. And I felt like by the time I finished that, I was like, if I can write, if I can write a retrospective where there's a clear kind of, um, there's clear logic to, to the decision. And at the end of like conclusion at the end of this post is that like, yep, this is why I made the call to move on. Like if I could compose this, then I would feel comfortable in me that I, that I was actually ready to, to call it on it. And then the bonus is that I got this deliverable on the other side, which was a, a post that I could share with the community that did get a lot of positive response. People, a lot of people resonated with the story. Yeah. You, I think Rob ended up posting it to hacker news and I got like 500 upvotes. And then a ton of, con it was like very public, you yeah. know, the very like top front page of Hacker News, thousands of developers and founders like reading kind of your retrospective and then giving like, you know, their own feedback as to why level didn't work out, et cetera. Yeah. What did it feel like to read those comments and be so public with what happened? I think it was a mostly positive experience, honestly. Like there were definitely some, some dismissive comments, you know, some like, well, what? only put in a year and and then you know of course most people recognize like well no this is <laughs> this is still a year's worth of time you know and um definitely it was interesting to see kind of the the varying perspectives from from the more traditional silicon valley lens versus kind of the more indie hacker lens you know two very different ways of viewing this whole uh this whole story and then i think like 10 days later you had another post that went to the top of hacker news called finding my next bootstrapped business idea. You were kind of outlining your process, yeah. for like how to go about looking for a business idea. And you had a lot of good stuff in there. You know, you talked about the fact that the market already needed to exist. You talked about a lot of like the internal motivations too. Like, why am I even doing this? You know, why do I want to start a company? What's going to make me mm -hmm. happy? What are my ambitions? How do you, how do you think about that today? It was really helpful to go through that exercise because I think it's, it's 
it's important to know, like, first know yourself, <laughs> know what you want out of it. Um, I, so like, yeah, one of the things I put in there was like, this needs to be kind of like some explicit timelines on, on being able to reach certain milestones was really important to me. So especially when you're not dealing with an infinite runway um, or you're not willing to like go out and raise the money to give yourself a really, really long runway, like getting to those milestones quickly was really important. So I was like, part of it was just digesting like lessons learned on what not to do again. And and some of it was like, just sort of a, I feel like a maturing my reaching my own maturity on like on mindset stuff, which is always a work in progress. But yeah, I think founder market fit is is so important to to try to strive towards first and foremost, and then kind of let the rest fall from there. You can kind of tell that like you've been through the ringer a bunch of times. Like when you are a founder and you have this list of like, I will not do this. This is my constraint. These are my cutoffs. Like every grizzled founder has a list of things like they're not going to do anymore. I just want to read through your list in the blog post because you've got a bunch of stuff here. You've said. The product should not be mission critical. You don't want to build anything where like you having downtime is going to like affect your customers' businesses, which is like a, probably like a stress thing because it's super stress. Like if any hackers goes yep. down, like I'm sad, but like no one's life is ruined. Like no one has to go mm-hmm. to any hackers, and like it's kind of good. It's kind of relaxing. Yep. You said your MVP, your minimum viable product, must be shippable within a few months. Uh, you said the market must already exist. You said that making a sale shouldn't require more than a few decision makers. You don't want to have to deal with a whole giant pipeline of people you have to convince to buy your app. You said that native apps should not be a minimum requirement. People come to expect the native desktop app and like the Android app and the iOS app and like you just didn't want to have to build mm-hmm. all that to sell your product. And then finally, you said the market should overlap with your existing audience that you've already built up over years of building products and building in public and tweeting and speaking and all sorts of stuff. That last one is another another piece. Like, there's this debate always goes on of like, is it re- are you required to build an audience in order to build a successful software company? And I'm definitely one that would say like, no, you're absolutely not required. What you should do, what is the smart thing to do, is to always just look around you at like, what are your unfair advantages that you potentially have, and try to make the most of those. And for me, like, this was a pretty pretty considerable one. Like, you know, I've been investing in the podcasting for for a while and, and kind of publishing online and I could do myself a service by by trying to find something that I could sell to those existing people who are already uh, kind of in the in the circles. How did you go from this point where you're kind of wandering through the wilderness? I mean, you're literally in a cabin in the woods trying to think about what to do next to deciding that you're going to do Savvy Cal, which is what you're working on today. That was the most challenging time, to be honest, because I wanted to get down to work on something like I wanted to really sink my teeth into something but I really didn't know what I was going to do and I sort of had the summer in front of me and spent a lot of time like in a hammock (laughs) thinking and with my idea notebook and kind of scouring back through past ideas and and just kind of dreaming and um, having the pressure to come up with an idea is really hard but I was like what are well I have a couple options and it's like plan b plan c they weren't all that bad you know I could go could go get a job. And I think there's absolutely zero shame in doing that. That's where entrepreneurs a lot of times get some of their fresh ideas is from working in someone else's company and observing all the things that are broken, you know? And, and so I think that's a perfectly like reasonable path to go. And I, I did entertain that. I also don't want to treat ideas as too precious in their own right. I just wanted to kind of follow a framework of like, let's explore problems. And cause there's tons of problems all around and kind of explore and, and see what see what I uncover. And and so I ended up working for a little while on a product called Static Kit that was a um, 
it was a suite of tools for for people using like static website technologies. So like being able to embed forms and rich client side stuff on your static site. I didn't really have a super clear vision for where to take that, but it was sort of like a an in between. Like I want to, I like this kind of technology space, and I want to, I want to play with some of this, some of this stuff, and just kind of keep shipping stuff into the world. And so I did that for a while, and I think it was still like a positive experience, even though it wasn't like a it wasn't a knockout success. But it kind of kept me busy and kept me thinking for a little while. You think that being like so public with everything, because I'm you're like relaying all these experiences on your podcast. Do you think that motivated like you to basically keep trying and not go get a job? Because if like no one knew what you're up to, it probably would have been easier to be like, I quit. <laughs> I'm going to get a job. I'll come back next year. I think that was definitely a factor. Yeah, and I did think about like stepping back from the podcast for for a little bit of time during that period but I was like you know what I I don't want to get out of the game ultimately I was still I still felt a strong pull to to be in it in part because of because of the podcast and things like that and I thought that is a good yeah. forcing function I think but but not always easy <laughs> not not easy on the ego either you know I love I love like social accountability I love having any sort of like I don't know pride or shame or status or reputation or, like any other people you can bring in to what you're doing because if you think about it like we all have that at like jobs you know, if you have a job, you probably have a boss, you probably have coworkers, you have other people who can kind of see the output of what you're doing. You know, maybe it's hard to explicitly always know that that's what's motivating you, but it probably plays a role. And then the second you become a founder, like unless you're broadcasting what you're doing to lots of people, you kind of lose that motivating factor and it's just you. And it's, sometimes it's like easier to let yourself down than it is to let down an audience of like thousands of people listening to your every word on your podcast. And investors, so like I, I raised some tiny seed funding basically shortly after the um after the level the level wind down and that was sort of like a that was rob and einar making a bet on me as a founder you know and saying like we think you're going to do some interesting things and so that was both a stress reliever but also like caused me to put right. a lot of pressure on myself i think because now now i now i'm dealing with other people's money i have other people have skin in the game here and so it's funny how a lot of times some of the things that should be a relief are also like a big stressor. Exactly. Um, yeah, I feel the same way with Andy Hackers at Stripe, where it's like, oh, this would be a relief. I'm like done with the solo part, but it's like, no, actually, like, this big company bought my company, and I feel a lot of pressure to make it like a worthwhile purchase for them. And I, I think that pressure is kind of good because, like, in a lot of ways, as an indie hacker, if you're aiming for freedom or you're aiming to live like a really good lifestyle, you kind of start your business, and almost like on day one, you kind of feel like you've made it. You're like, I don't have a boss anymore. I quit my job, or you know, I'm working for myself. You know, and it's really easy then to just take all the pressure off yourself and be like, I'm gonna live a life of freedom and ease. But like, you probably can't really do that until you've gotten to where you've gotten with Savvy Cow. You know, until you've gotten to the point where you're profitable, it's probably dangerous to start thinking that way until you've already been successful. And so, ironically, choosing to be an indie hacker probably should mean choosing to put a lot of pressure on yourself and to be accountable to other people until you get to that point. Yeah, I think that's kind of the maybe a hidden a hidden secret or quality about indie hacking, right? Is like there's a lot of people who kind of see the you know, there's like the pockets of like digital nomads and people who are like I'm going to do the geo arbitrage game and keep my expenses low and get just enough income so I can I can have this this lifestyle of adventure or whatever whatever you want to optimize for. But I think also the those of us who kind of get into this game of like running our own companies also get tugged by that ambition factor and like before you know it like we actually do want to want to do really interesting things that and stay challenged and that challenge kind of just draws you towards 
towards more and more ambitious things, which does kind of encroach a little bit on the right. on the carefree, easy lifestyle part that kind of entices yeah. a lot of people. Yeah, you know, it's this weird, almost opposite sort of, of what your goal is. You end up getting dragged into it, and it's kind of like our own fault. Like we do it to yeah. ourselves. But maybe right. there's just something more interesting right. about it overall. Like maybe the, the the dream that we want the super carefree, easy life is not necessarily what we want. I think that might be sort of like the, yeah, the dream of like right. retiring on a beach after you sell your company, which like no, yeah, yeah, no, no one ends up actually doing that or being happy doing that. Not, you know? At least the kind of person who's going to create a super successful company is not the kind of person who's wired to go do nothing for a very long time. Yeah. I think we're f- most fulfilled by challenging endeavors, ultimately. I think I, I remember listening to a podcast um, from, she was like the right hand executive at Netflix mm. and kind of talking about how like, like, yeah, the best days when you, when you come home from work. The best days are when you like collapse on the couch. It was like, oh my gosh, that was such a hard thing we just did and we accomplished it. It's not the days where like, oh, nothing really happened. And I went in and sat at my desk for a little while and left early. Like those aren't the no. fulfilling days or the ones no, you remember. And it's like, it's weird because yeah. there's also like a lot said about sort of the toxic Silicon Valley startup culture where everybody's like overworked, you know, and they're sleeping under their desks and the whole team's staying up late. Uh, but often when you talk to people in those situations, like that is like, those were the best times. Like the people really right. remember those times that they're bonded together. It's almost like a tribal, you, you just go through hardships with people who are your comrades and who are your colleagues. And then you come out the yeah. other end and like, that's what you remember. So let's talk about the, uh, the beginning of Savvy Cow. Cause eventually you decided to start Savvy Cow and it's kind of fits your pattern. You know, there already was one or two big incumbents in the space. You we were already doing this well. Why did you think that the world needed another scheduling application yeah so i had become i had been a user of of calendly for many years we integrated with them um at drip early pretty early on because we were using them for demos and we needed to like track that like when someone scheduled something we automatically put them in a workflow so i was like very very aware of of the tooling and kind of the problem space and of course i've used it to schedule customer interviews for all the products I've done in the past. So sort of understood like the underlying problem here. But the thing that really got me intrigued by it was kind of observing like the weird power dynamic issue that arises around using scheduling links. So there are some some pockets of the industry where people just literally refuse to use them because it's just too faux pas, like it's too too laden with landmines, like you might end up offending somebody. And so they just always fall back to the inefficient way of, of scheduling times. And then other people like are just, I want to use it, but other people are super hesitant. And so it's just, it was a curious thing to me that like, there's this tool that, or this whole class of tools that save people a ton of time. And yet there's all this resistance to using them. And it's both a product problem and a people problem. Like there's, you know, there are like elements of etiquette and ways to like just communicate well so that you don't turn someone off <laughs> when you're sending sending your communication and including a link. But like, so I think it's it's twofold. And I think that I wasn't seeing a lot of innovation happening on the product front around like trying to actually make this better, make this a more collaborative experience, reduce friction as much as possible for the scheduler. I kind of felt like things were just sort of status quo for a while. And yet, this is a highly demanded tool. I mean, I didn't plan on it on demand increasing even more during the pandemic because I started like right around the beginning of the pandemic, actually. So that's what kind of got me interested in the problem space. And I also kind of compared it against my my rubric that we kind of went through some of these criteria that I've been building up over time. Like people can use it in in a single player mode. You know, an individual can just start sending out links for themselves and then gradually 
their team can can hop on. It's important, but not like if I need 10 minutes of downtime to do some database maintenance, it's not a big deal. And so it kind of checked a lot of the boxes. And so then just the question became like, well, do I even stand a chance against, you know, extremely successful and and overall well-liked uh, competitors like Calendly? Right. And can you explain to people like how an app like Calendly works? I assume most people have like used this, but probably a lot of people have no clue like what this a problem this is even solving. So I mean, you basically create your account and you attach, you link your calendar to it. So you you authorize your Google Calendar or Outlook Calendar, whatever you use, and then you create a link. And the link basically has it gives you your availability minus any existing events you have on your calendar so that right. people can find a time. It makes it so much easier to schedule. Because yeah. I use this with like the podcast. I'm like, hey, Derek, let's find a time. I send you like a savvy cal link and you click it and you just like know exactly what times are free on my calendar that I've specified and I don't have to do anything. Then I just look at my calendar the next day, or the next week, and like your event is on there. It's like having almost like a like a personal secretary or something or assistant who's just helping yep. scheduling. Exactly. Yeah. And that's what like, you know, your kind of more classic busy executive may, they may have a personal assistant. So instead of using a link, they would just right. like copy their assistant on an email thread and say, all right, I'm going to hand you off to yeah. so-and-so to yeah. coordinate this. And nowadays the um, assistants are just using Calendly and SavvyCal and the like too. <laughs> They're just right. like, okay, here's a link, you <laughs> exactly. pick, pick something. Yep. You're kind of staring this idea in the face. It's doing really well on your checklist. I think probably the only item on your checklist that it might not be like perfect on is the fact that like, you know, it might be mission critical to a small degree. People might be upset if it goes down, but like you said, it's not the biggest deal in the world. Uh, but you've got to face down this huge incumbent that people kind of like. It works well enough. You know, like I probably haven't had very much time using Calendly, where I like regret using Calendly. Uh, what's your playbook for building an app that takes on a huge incumbent? Like, how do you know if it's a good idea to try to build something in a space where people are already solving that problem really well? I'm hesitant to say that it's a a repeatable playbook because I think it's. You know, every every app is a little different. Every industry is a little different. But what I recognized here that gave me that gave me confidence was that I sensed some stagnation. Some of the bigger incumbents slowing down a bit, and that's kind of a natural thing to happen as you grow in size. Like Calendly has hundreds of thousands of customers, and you know, millions of people using the product, and you just it's just hard to like turn that ship quickly, you know, and, and be able to respond quickly to, to what customers are demanding. And I started looking around and seeing a lot of, while there is a lot of love for the product, there's also a lot of dissatisfaction out there on forums. So you can kind of, I kind of did the thing of scouring places where people are talking about not just Calendly, but all the, all the tools, you know, and, and a lot of people, you know, publicly asking for things, expressing, um, dissatisfaction with things on, and these threads just kind of sitting around for a couple of years with no real response. And that's, that's a sign that like this company is both really successful. Like they're, they're doing really well financially, but they're not responding so quickly anymore to what customers are wanting. And I think that's, that's where, that's the crack where an indie hacker has, has an opportunity to like, and so I didn't know if it was going to look like, um, you know, carving out this little, this little niche and was Savvy Cal going to become like scheduling for X, you know, something very, very narrow and specific. I wasn't sure how narrow I would have to go. I mean, this product lends itself to more of a horizontal type of positioning just because it is so broadly applicable. And so that was sort of, I sort of held loosely onto that initially um, and just um, 
you know, like I think April Dunford's positioning um, book, which is one of my favorite resources, she kind of talks about like intentionally keeping your positioning pretty broad because you're trying to have like a big fishing net to, to capture a lot initially. So it was like kind of keep the net wide, but be on the lookout for very specific things and ultimately kind of double down on on something. So I kind of chose this angle of like the awkwardness um, piece and really just kind of tried to get my MVP done as quickly as possible, honestly, because beyond that, like talking to potential customers, I got a lot of people expressing skepticism like, I don't know, man, I think this one's locked up already. And so it did take a little bit yeah. of a leap. I mean, right at the top of your landing page, it says sending your schedule scheduling link shouldn't feel weird. Like you're a hundred percent in on the awkwardness and the feeling of it. And like reading that, like I feel, I mean, I feel that pain, right? I'm like, okay, that's definitely a problem that I've had with scheduling links. It definitely feels a little bit awkward. That's kind of a, a cool way to carve out your own niche in an industry that's already got, like, I wonder what does Calendly's homepage say? Like, what is their sort of claim to fame? Calendly.com, there says, easy scheduling ahead <laughs> so they're about ease of use yep. right it's super simple it's it's easier yep. than other apps you just have like your own sort of your own benefit and i think i got to i got to draft off of the a lot of the awareness that they've built up too you know like i'm primarily getting people who are coming from calendly have been dissatisfied with it looking for the power dynamic stuff to be resolved and i mean they i think in the early days of calendly it was like they were having to teach people what this tool even is and how it works and so that's that's another thing like you ideally want to be in the position where Savvy Cal is today, where it's like there's a bunch of people who are already very aware of this problem space, and now there's like a they're looking for something a little different um, on a few things that, and if you can execute on it, that's where the opportunity lies. Yeah, I think. I'm looking at this like an action because their homepage is all about educating people. Even still, it's like you can schedule meetings without the back and forth emails, and you, you know here's how it works, here's what you do, and your whole thing is 100% predicated on people already knowing this. Like, okay, scheduling your link shouldn't feel weird. That only makes sense to people if they know what a scheduling link is. And you say like, finally, a scheduling tool that both the sender and the recipient will love. Again, that only makes sense if people already know what this is. So you're selling to like a kind of a more educated, more experienced market of, I guess, disgruntled uh, scheduling tool users. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. How do you yep. avoid some yep. of the mistakes you made in the past though? I mean, like for example, with uh, Level, one of the hard things was like, you just had to spend a lot of time building features because you're taking on this incumbent like Slack that already had a ton of features that people expect. And it's probably the same with Savvy Cal. You start off day one and like, guess what? Like all, especially since you're sort of catering to like these existing users you already know, they already have like some minimum level of expectation for like, what well, does this do everything that Calendly does, which might be a huge like months log slog for you just to copy all these features. That was something I was deliberately trying to get out in front of this time around and Really, the way I mitigated it was engaging with anyone who came in, came in the door, put their email address on. I tried to spark a, a conversation with them to figure out, like, okay, what exactly are you looking for? What's the minimum that you need in order to to use this product? And so I did push it pretty aggressively when when I first started inviting people in June, July. I was just a couple months into the product and it was missing a ton of features. I mean, we're still playing catch up on on a lot of the, the long tail of features, you know, that that people people expect. But but I found like there's actually, you know, kind of the the 80% rule. There's a lot of people that are not that are not using that other 20%, those other 20% of features. It seems like a majority of people are just kind, they just kind of need to be able to present their availability and, and all the rest of the stuff, it's like nice to have. So trying to get clarity as early as possible on like how essential is that? Like, is it a nice to have or is this a deal breaker? 
Yeah, that makes a lot of sense because I'm the I'm the kind of person who doesn't really need like Calendly has a million features that I just don't need and all sorts of integrations and mm -hmm. things like yeah some people need it but like <laughs> I just need the basics and then since you're kind of focused on like the scheduling screen like I send somebody the link they click the link and then they get like you know they see my calendar but like that screen that you have is super friendly it's like super customizable there's all this stuff that I can like put on there to make it like a good experience for them so that kind of delivers on your value proposition of like okay it shouldn't feel weird I shouldn't feel awkward I shouldn't feel like I'm insulting the person by sending them this link. What about growth and like marketing? Because the other thing that's hard is like, okay, well, yeah, the incumbents are sort of creating this market. They're educating people, but also like because they're the ones educating people, like everybody knows their name. And especially with the scheduling stuff, it's like a little bit viral where like when somebody sends out a scheduling link, everybody now, the recipient sort of hears about that. It's kind of like um, greeting cards. Like nobody buys greeting cards and just keeps them for themselves. Like everybody who buys a greeting card gives it to somebody else. So it's like a naturally viral product. How do you, like this brand new player who no one's ever heard of, cut through basically the noise and like get people to start using you instead of Calendly? How do you get people to even find you? Yeah, that's a, I mean, that's a great question. I think that that quality of like every time someone uses my product, they're inherently exposing it to other people. That was one of the big um, kind of selling points to me in choosing to, to take on this endeavor because um that that kind of viral loop is is extremely powerful and in listening to like um you know kind of deconstructing how how my competitors have grown like that is kind of the the number one by and large um kind of growth growth path for them so for me it was kind of about working as hard as i could to recruit as many people from my sphere uh who are you know listening to my podcast following me on twitter or whatever to start using it um and and then just inherently spreading it to to their second degree contacts and on has that worked out because that's like the um, it's the holy grail of like every software engineer wants to build an app that once you build it it just spreads yeah. itself and it's just growing on its own and you don't have to do anything because it's just naturally viral i think it's um i do think it's working it's extremely hard to track um in a way that's like that's not totally invasive of privacy i feel like we've kind of taken a stand of like trying to trying to use privacy aware tooling as much as possible. I'm a big Fathom Analytics fan. Um, but like, yeah, figuring out all the multiple touches that people have with the product and like, was that touch where they received a scheduling link and scheduled something? How, at what point did that touch occur in their awareness cycle? It's very hard to, very hard to suss out. I want to get more sophisticated about it. But like anecdotally, we started, um, asking kind of a question we added to our onboarding. How did you hear about us? <laughs> Basically to get get some qualitative data on that. And it definitely gets gets cited quite a bit of like, oh yeah, I used a I used a link for right. someone else. So I think it is I think yeah. it is working. What else are you doing? Are you doing yeah. any like content marketing? Are you doing like social media marketing? Do you have a mailing list? Like what else are you even trying to do besides relying on the word of mouth growth? Yeah. So we've done um, we've experimented with some podcast ads, which are also <laughs> very difficult to track um aside from using a using a coupon code when you know when you hear it mentioned on the on the ad um but i think that is definitely driving awareness we're working on some strategic seo stuff so just kind of digging and doing our keyword research digging into that and and um making some strategic landing pages um we are kind of spinning up we're in the process of spinning up an affiliate program right now um so it's sort of like a, a it's a grab bag of things. I like to I love to reference the the traction book by Justin Maris and Gabriel Weinberg. Um, and sort of their their thinking on like, you know, trying to craft things as experiments as much as possible to suss out the viability of traction channels. And that's sort of where we're at on 
on trying to figure out like what's what's the real breakout like right. insert one dollar get three dollars back out the other side uh, flywheel yeah. gonna be um, yeah it's explore and exploit you gotta explore a bunch of different options you gotta yeah. put in enough effort such that like you can actually test it out and come to like some sort of like believable conclusion as to whether or not it will work uh, but like not so much effort that you don't have time to try other channels and try other things and then when you find something that works you do exactly what you're saying press the gas pedal and go like a hundred percent on that but it's pretty like inspirational and heartening to see that like you haven't necessarily found some like magic bullet and yet you've still been able to get to like this level of success like even the other things you haven't done like you haven't perfected your user tracking and figuring out where people are coming from and yet you're still able to make a profitable company like you don't necessarily have to do the entire kitchen sink to get to the point where you have a successful business yeah, so much of business success, I feel like, is like despite all of the things that we have locked yeah. in, you know, like so many businesses. And and this is what I've learned in working in, you know, drip post acquisition, seeing what lead pages look like on the inside. I mean, it, most companies are pretty chaotic on the inside. And there's there's just um, there's a lot of moving parts and a lot that that doesn't end up working out. And yet, thankfully, <laughs> businesses just tend to uh, march forward. Well, it's pretty cool to see like how far you've come despite all this stuff. And I think, uh, obviously, you have a pretty bright future. I mean, like any direction you go in seems like it's going to be promising. Where do you think things will go from here? Like, what are you excited about with Savvy Cow now that you've gotten to this point of profitability? Yeah, this does feel like kind of a kind of an inflection point for the business. Like we've we've made it past that that like 10K mark where it's like, OK, if, if you can make it past that and growth is not plateaued, like you, I think we're on to something. So I feel like it's that, that box is checked, which is a, allows me uh, admittedly to breathe a sigh of relief a little bit, you know? Um, and now the question becomes like, how do I think about expanding the team? So that's kind of what I'm thinking about right now. Like I'm wearing too many hats right now. So it's, it's, you know, I'm going to, I'm getting some help on support and starting, um, getting that ball rolling next week, I think. And, and then looking to make my first engineering hire to really help contribute to the product, um, which is, it's daunting because I know what, what a big deal it is to, to kind of make that first, that first hire. You know, and I'm thinking about like, how do I want to, what do I want my day to day to look like? And honestly, my, my fondest memories from building Drip were the earliest days where there was a couple of us that would come into an office a couple days a week. Um, we were still flexible. We would work remotely a ton, but like being able to collaborate in front of a whiteboard and then go grab happy hour later in the day was just, was really nice. And I think, I think there will be a little bit of a resurgence of, of some partial like in-person work, um, with some of that like high fidelity human communication stuff that's really hard to replicate virtually. And, um, so yeah, I, I don't have that part figured out yet, but it's something I'm thinking through like, yeah. That's kind of the fun stuff to think about because if you start a company, you can structure it however you want and you can make it, I mean, if you really like don't want any human contact, you can be like, I want a remote company. We're not going to do video chat. Zoom is not allowed. Do your own thing. And you only hire people who thrive. Like if that's the life you want, you could do that. You know, if you want to hire people who are local, who are extroverts, who want to meet in person and you, you can do that and have like a really great soul. Like you can do literally anything that you want with your company. And so like, you know, kind of that post where you were writing down, like, what do I want with my life? I feel like that's a question you should probably always be asking yourself as a founder. Like, I'm still asking myself that with any hackers every month, try to figure out where I want to go. Uh, you've been through a lot as a founder. You've had lots of ups and downs. What's one takeaway you think a fledgling new indie hacker could take away from your journey so far, Derek? So I think the 
probably the biggest piece of advice I would give is to, if you're like me and you're an introvert and your natural tendency is to like to dive into the code and kind of focus on product, is to get outside of your comfort zone a little bit and really try to actively engage in the community, whether that's online, on a place like Indie Hackers, or in your local town. Um, I think if I reflect back on my own journey, like the biggest the biggest driver towards my success has been kind of the the different kind of small groups that I've been a part of, mastermind groups, um, and and seeking mentorship. It really helps you to to like sanity check your own assumptions and and keep you on the right path when you have other people who are kind of intimately aware of the stuff that you're working on and kind of sanity checking your your ideas. I love it. I've had the same exact experience. Introvert as well. Spent years. Locked in my apartment building stuff without talking to anybody, and it uh, didn't work very well. And then the second I started something where I'm talking to people uh, for a living, it worked really well. So uh, introverts out there, make sure you're actually connecting with people and sharing what you're up to. Derek Reimer, thanks for coming on the show. It's been a pleasure having you. Yeah. I have to have you again. Same way I've had Ben and Rob on a whole bunch of times. I got to catch up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> where can listeners go to learn more about what you're up to with Savvy Cow and everything else nowadays? Yeah, so the 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 product is at SavvyCal.com. I should have mentioned this earlier, but I have a special coupon code for uh, Indie Hackers audience. Just use Indie Hackers in the checkout flow to get your first month free. And um, and then you can find me on Twitter at Derek Reimer. Sweet. I'll put the Indie Hackers coupon code in the show notes as well. Thanks again, Derek. Awesome. Thanks.